Welcome to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. The problem is the transparency issue in schools. Parents don't know that these things are being taught. Hello, friends of the Austin Institute, new and old ones. I'm Dr. Mariana Orlandi, Associate Director of the Austin Institute. And it is my pleasure to welcome you all to our show, What We Can't Not Talk About. If you're not familiar with the Austin Institute, let me just say that we are a most needed institution and you should definitely check out our website, our YouTube channel, and listen to some of our past episodes. As you will discover, one of the main goals of the Austin Institute is to continue to support and disseminate sound academic research on the family, on marriage, and on issues as central to who we are is our human sexuality, our freedom, and our identity. Issues that too often are not addressed today without prior adherence to a particular side or ideology. Our strategy consists in researching and in open debate, informed and respectful debate, but free debate. Dialogue, we believe, is the one and the best way to grow, both as individuals and as a society, and hence the title of our podcast. Of course, the idea of our title also came from one of our senior fellows' most famous books, What We Can't Not Know, a book on natural law that describes those truths that are inscribed in our hearts, truths that we may try to reject, to deny, but that will always reappear, sometimes even haunting us if we're not careful. Perhaps some of those truths are the same truths that we can't not talk about, we already published more than 60 episodes and we would like to continue to do so. So if you like the idea of this venue, of this show, be sure to share our episodes with your friends. And I also invite you to subscribe to our podcast and to our YouTube channel. And of course, if you can, please donate. Now, coming to the topic of today's episode, we're here today with former attorney and current executive director of another incredible organization is Canavox. And our guest today is April Redinger. Good morning, April. Good morning, Mariana. Thank you so much for having me on today. Oh, absolutely. You're most welcome on our show. And we, I said Canavox, and I'm sure that some of the aficionados will know what that is because that was already on our episode. I think it was like around 40. But if you don't mind, for those who are new, what is Canavox? So, uh, Canavox is an organization uh, that helps people get together and form reading groups where they talk about uh, the importance of marriage and family and uh, the understanding of um, really natural law sexuality. So um, we, we have reading groups all over the world. We're in 39 states and 31 countries, and we've got a little over 600 reading groups in those locations. So yeah, we're just trying to get out there and get people together to have important conversations like, you know, your podcast, like we're talking about things that a lot of people feel like that they can't talk about, but we're trying to put people together doing that. We've also recently just gotten to doing programming for younger audiences too. So we now have programming for college students and then also for middle school and high school students. So okay, I and reach out to everyone. Yeah. And if our listeners want to know more. There was a brilliant episode that I recorded with Anna Samuel, who's the academic director of Canavox, so they can listen to that too. But, you know, this this could be a, a funny question, considering that I might know part of the answer to it. But why does a former lawyer, which full disclosures, I'm one too, end up doing what you're doing? 
There's a couple of reasons. One, uh, practically speaking, I was working at a big law firm in New York and I decided to stop practicing law because I had two young daughters. My husband's also an attorney as well. And, you know, the lifestyle is not really conducive to raising a young family. And um, so practically speaking, I stopped practicing. I thought I would do it for a while. And I had been connected with the Witherspoon Institute over the years through various connections that I had. And I lived in Princeton and I just loved the work they were doing. And I knew our academic director, Anna Samuel, and she and Louise Tellis found out that I had, you know, stopped the practice of law and recruited me for this new programming. They said, you have to come take a look at what we're doing. And like I said, I was already connected and knew of the work that Witherspoon had been doing for the years. And talking about Witherspoon, you mean education on this this particular topics? or Yeah, overall, like really all of the programming that Witherspoon had done, I was familiar with them. And when they approached me about this project to really promote marriage and family, I thought, oh my gosh, yes, absolutely. Uh, this is why I just left the law practice, right? Mm-hmm. So I could be like in the in the trenches with my family. And it just seemed to fit. And it's a family-friendly work environment. And I just, I can't think of anything more important than getting people talking about these topics and thinking about them. Not just, I mean, I think people really have to stop and have long, thoughtful conversations and just understand why it's so important. Like, why is family important? It's the foundation of society, right? And if we chip away at it, then, you know, like there's going to be all kinds of problems. And we're seeing those things today, right? We're seeing those things. No, and I like what you say, because it's true. International law, I saw that, I mean, you did international litigation. International mm-hmm. law recognizes the family as the fundamental group union of society. It's not us, you know, to make that up. But as you said, it's important to understand why. Why is it the case? Because I also believe, you know, we're trained as lawyers and then as scholars to ask, what are the reasons to believe what we still believe in? So, As you say, it's important to talk about these things, even when we agree, even more so when we agree, because we need to understand why is it that we believe in what we believe in? Should we change some of our ideas at some point? Absolutely. I mean, there is a way in which, you know, we can be solid in our beliefs only and exclusively by talking about it and thinking about it. I think people forget about it. Like they kind of just go on autopilot and do things and forget why they're doing them or why things are important and they take things for granted. But I think you can only really understand them better and and not take things for granted when you actually study them and and think about them a little bit more deeply and then have conversations with others about them as well. Yeah, there is something that recently Professor Irie read, Professor Jaczewski always, you know, trying to point out why and how love is an action and not a feeling. He just points people to say, well, in marriage, you wouldn't have vows if it were a feeling because you can't promise feelings. You know, and it's a very simple thing. But then when people think about it, it's just yeah. like, oh, right, right. And try to remember that you already know that love is an action. But well, we could keep talking probably for two hours, but I think we need to get to the topic that I invited you on for today, which is an interesting article that the Public Discourse published on April 20th, written by the Canavox staff and by the inter- state and international leader. And this article discusses a new curriculum, K-12, was a bill that was then signed into law in New Jersey. And the article discusses in a pretty critical way the content of this curriculum. So I invited you because, you know, the criticism seems to be very well-grounded. And I wanted you to tell us more also because, as you're right in the article, that kind of curriculum is not something that is unique to New Jersey. 
absolutely, it's not limited to New Jersey. And so while the article focuses on the specifics of the different lesson plans that were floated about here in New Jersey, I think you can look at several different states and see that the same lesson plans are actually being implemented and you know proposed in, in different states. And you actually can look at the, the group that was proposing the lesson plans that we discuss in the article. Actually, if you go on their website, you can see that they have proposed curriculum for a variety of states. So like all of the states that have these learning standards, um, just like New Jersey does, and most states do have them, right? Most boards of departments of education in the various states have different standards. They expect kids to learn, you know, by various grades, right? So by, you know, second grade, there's a whole host of things that they want second graders to know by fifth grade, by seventh grade, by their graduation from high school. So all states have these standards, but then the individual curriculum are implemented at the district levels in each of the schools. So like I said, while this is you know, just specific to this New Jersey legislation, it's really going on all throughout the country. And we're talking here about a sex and gender curriculum. So how the topics of sex and gender identity are addressed in K-12, in this case, in New Jersey and this model, model plans, which as I understand, have not been implemented yet, or am I wrong there? Well, so there's two things, right? There's the, the learning standards, which were adopted, so revised. So like every five years, these learning standards in New Jersey are revised. And in this year, it's not all the standards at once, there's different categories, but this year, uh, in 2020 rather, the standards were revised in several areas of the curriculum in the schools. I think there were seven areas, including the one that's in comprehensive health and physical education. So normally they were done every five years. But in these particular standards, they were revised to include, so in comprehensive health and physical education, the standards were revised to include more inclusive language on sexual orientation and gender identity. So that happened in 2020. But then in 2021, what happened was the New Jersey legislature passed a law that mandated that the curriculum in New Jersey overall, so the entire everything, not just sex, health, and physical education, but everything had to include instruction on diversity and inclusion. And actually, specifically, what it called for was that the instruction on diversity and inclusion would take place in an appropriate a place in the curriculum of students in grades K through 12 mm. as part of the overall standards. So you have these overall standards, but then you have this new legislation a year later that says anywhere where it's appropriate in the curriculum, we're going to have instruction that highlights and promotes diversity on uh, equity, inclusion, tolerance, and belonging in connection with gender and sexual orientation. So there's like kind of two things going on. The stuff that we addressed in the article, we, we talked a little bit about both, but the stuff that we addressed were these lesson plans that were floated about to implement the curriculum on the comprehensive physical uh, health and physical education. Yeah. And so we're talking about public schools, correct? Yes, this is, these are in public schools. Okay. Just for me to know, if people in New Jersey decide not to attend public schools, are these requirements at any point learning requirements that will be required for kids, you know, just as a standard that applies to all? Or there is at least a choice of keeping, you know, children from going to public school. They don't have to meet those requirements. So there's certain requirements that public schools, I mean, that the private schools are required to implement, but these aren't them. Like private schools do not have to have the sex education element. Like my kids go to a private Christian school and they don't have 
sex education. I would say, you know, you, we need a little, a little more particularly careful about things that are in public schools because public schools are a place for, I mean, I know from what I understand, less privileged on, on average children, right? So absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, if we're talking about children that go to public schools, we're also talking about children who might not have parents who have the time to read their children curriculum, who might not have the time to talk to the instructors and see what's going on or talk to their own kids because maybe, you know, probably they're both working if they're both parents, if there's not just only one. So the interest of looking into this public schools curriculum is part of, you know, being engaged in our community and understanding what's going on, you know, even in things that do not immediately touch our own private family. And I would like to, on this line, along this line, like thinking about public education made me think, it's one thing that you mentioned towards the end of the article, which to me, as a former criminal lawyer, it just spoke immediately of something that is quite disturbing, which is the way in which you think that the way this new curriculum handles abuse and sexual abuse is not the one that should be, is not appropriate for kids. So could you tell us more on that regard? Yeah. So I have to say like one of the most, so, you know, one of the core areas in these standards that they, they propose these standards and the standards are, there's like 60, the thing that actually really amazing to the whole thing is that there's these 66 pages of standards that they have to like implement in the curriculum, right? And these teachers have to get up these lesson plans and I look at all of these things. These are just seven different areas, right? That they revised but then there's all these other areas that kids are supposed to be learning about. And I think, how in, on earth do these kids get any like learning done? Or how do teachers do actually any teaching when they're trying to worry about implementing all of these standards, right? Like, where's math? Where's science? Where's history? You know, like, where are all these things when we have these standards on these other topics? But the most appalling area to me, well, one of the most appalling areas was on this area of sexual abuse, right? And it's well-intentioned. Right. I mean, I'm going to look at it very charitably and say it's well-intentioned. No one wants children to suffer from sexual abuse. We want to protect them and teach them how to prevent that from happening to them. Right. Mm -hmm. But when you look at these lesson plans and you see the, the lesson, I believe, was called My Body is My Body Lesson, which, again, that title seems like that's, you know, well-intentioned and good. And it seems on its face that it's going to be good. But the teachers in there and part of, as part of that sample curriculum, the teacher is supposed to have the children in second grade, so these are seven-year-olds, role play and take turns with each other pretending that they have been appropriately or touched or sexually abused. They're supposed to be doing it so that they can like practice telling people something bad has happened to them. So how to do it. I think how and why in the world would anybody who cares at all about the welfare of children want to have them go through a simulated exercise where they're talking about being sexually abused and not just like say I was sexually abused. They want them to give details about it. Like, how could that possibly be good for any child? I just don't understand that. You know, we're only an audio recording. People should look at my face as you're saying this. Yeah. It just reminds yeah, me just, of how yeah. wrong it is. Even, you know, in criminal trials, the idea that, you know, you don't have testimony for children or if you ask, if you need to hear their, you know, ask them questions, there is just this sense in which they're, 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 their mind is so easy to manipulate. And it's really hard to understand what could happen in the child's mind by asking. And then, as you rightly point out, what if that child had really been abused? Yeah. So what if you put in the role play 
a child who is facing this problem? Is the teacher then, you know, capable of addressing it at a seven-year-old and addressing the situation that would spark in the classroom, probably, you know? So we're asking teachers to be social workers. We're asking another seven-year-old who's hearing the information that comes from another seven-year-old who potentially was abused. We're asking them to be social workers and processes. I mean, like, there's nothing good about that. Like, there's nothing good about that. I have a five-year-old, I have a 12-year-old, and I have a 16-year-old. I can't imagine under any circumstances ever asking them to role play that they've been sexually abused. It's a horrific thing. It's horrific. It is horrific. And I think we should go slow just to make it clear that it is horrific. It's horrific to have abuse, but it's horrific to handle something that is so delicate in such an indelicate and indelicate way. As you write, also, you know, it kills their internal alarm. And I know that among the state and international leaders, there are, you know, you're a former lawyer, there are psychologists, former psychologists, like the the level of expertise that went into write the criticism for this curriculum is is very high. But then talking about abuse, it also like in this, my body, my body, my, what is it? My body, uh, the last... It's my, my body is my body. Lesson. My body is my body lesson that it talks about good and bad touch. And that is also geared, as I understand, to very young kids as if there was a good yeah. touch. I mean, you have kids. I hear, you know, that even pediatricians would suggest parents to have them wash themselves. Oh, yeah, absolutely. At a certain age, they tell parents, pediatricians tell parents, you know, you shouldn't, kids need to decide, you know, it's their body. They get to decide who touches them, who doesn't. And when you're washing your child or even like putting lotion on, you know, there's lots of things that kids need, right? Lots yeah. of, um, you know, help. You don't touch them. The children, you teach the children to do it themselves, right? Because they need to not be desensitized to that. So yeah, it's just, it's really mind boggling in the curriculum. You know, again, you want to be charitable and think, you know, most people, they have the welfare of the children in mind when they're doing this. But when you see these things, it just doesn't make sense, right? You think it leads you to believe that there's got to be some other motive behind it. Because if you did have the the welfare of the child in mind, you wouldn't be advocating these types of conversations in a lesson plan. Yeah. And there are things that I'm even a little, you know, embarrassed to repeat that our, our listeners can read in the article itself. But you know, where they say that, you know, don't feel bad if some touch may feel good and you equate it with the rape victims, you know, and how rape victims sometimes then feel the shame of having felt good about certain things. So could that happen to the child as well? If I'm, if I'm understanding correctly, the point you're making there. Well, yeah. And it puts in, you know, what happens throughout all of these lesson plans, right? If you look at them from beginning to end through K through 12, they're so confusing the way they talk about things in one year and then the next year. So kids who go through this, right, they're not just going through it like each one in a vacuum, right? They're learning things early on and then they're learning things later on. And they're thinking about what they learned previously when they're learning late, you know, later lessons. And the curriculum is so confusing, inconsistent. What it does is really just plants the seeds of confusion with these children at an early level. And you know, when children are learning, they need stability, they need foundation, they need things that are concrete. This whole lesson plan overall, as you, when you look at it, is confusing. And I think it's done on purpose, you know, because I think you have to make things confusing. Otherwise, if they weren't, you know, people understand that they, the things don't make sense, right? If you put it in like clear, concise terms and you look at it all together, it wouldn't make sense, the things they're saying right? Like, you know, issues they bring up when they talk about, for instance, 
in the early grades, and I don't think this part was in the article, but in the early grades, they reference the lesson plans. They talk about referring to male and female, and they do refer to some things as male and female early on in the lesson plans. And they say that's because children are concrete learners and they only see things in black and white at certain ages, right? It's when they get older that they start thinking of things a little bit differently, right? More abstractly. But when you're in, I think, what was it? The second or third grade plan, or maybe it's fifth grade, when they're talking about the reproductive system. Fifth, yeah, they fifth refer grade. To, yeah. yeah, they refer to their reproductive systems as reproductive system one and reproductive system two. That just defies any you know, science-based biology. That just defies it, right? So they don't want to refer to that. But what they say in the lesson plan is, but if you're in a conservative area and the children, or if you're in a conservative community and the children keep referring, like as you're speaking about reproductive system one and reproductive system two, if the children, you know, keep referring it to as male and female, you don't have to correct them. But what you should do is yourself just keep referring to it as these big system one and system two. I mean, like that's purposely trying to confuse children who actually know the truth. Right. But this just doesn't make sense. Yeah. And as you said, it puts teachers, teachers in public school that already we know how many problems they're facing. It really puts them in a very difficult position. Yeah. One in which, I mean, I wouldn't want to find myself where I need to tell a child and then a child coming to me and asking me when he's 10 years old. So wait, are we female and males or not? And is that a question that, you know, every teacher in every classroom is capable of answering? I mean, I have my doubts. The way, you know, the way things are going, I mean, it's it's probably a question that everyone would be able to answer, but not today, where it becomes a question that a Supreme Court justice is required to answer. And can't? (laughs) Right. During a nomination. Yeah. You talked about the reproductive system one and two. And also another thing that you point out is that the description of the reproductive is dissociated with the description of the sexual, sexual system. How do they call it? You mean the, um... I mean, the reproductive, I'm a foreigner. So whenever I'm using, but the way I understand is that the reproductive system causes pleasure. And that's sort of like what we call I mean, the sexual, our sexual nature is, I mean, I, I don't know that it can be divided. Can we divide sexual, the sexual system and reproductive system? I'm asking. Um, I mean, I think you can probably use them interchangeably sometimes, but I do think the problem in this material was, there's a couple of, I mean, there's lots of problems, obviously, but a couple of things referring to the reproductive system not only do they just refer to it as these vague systems and don't want to say like one is specific to the male and one is specific to the female, even though, you know, like doctors learn about this medically speaking, mm-hmm. there obviously there's so many differences. It's almost like, I can't even believe we're trying to talk about that. There aren't differences. What they also do is, you know, obviously there's just some things that were in the article and, you know, maybe we don't want to repeat them on the air. Right. But they put different parts of the body they include that within the description of the reproductive system when they actually don't have anything to do with reproductive, the system. So again, like this is part of the confusion that I'm talking about, right? Throughout this whole curriculum, they confuse so many issues which are clear and have historically been clear. And I think you have to make things confusing for kids or, you know, as you're teaching them, because then later on the lessons that they try to teach, they wouldn't be able to teach them, right? If they taught concrete information, true information, 
from the beginning, they wouldn't be able to, you know, get the kids to say all these other crazy things like later in the later years, you know. Which, I mean, other people might not find crazy, but as you say, children are not usually given the option of saying, you know, you you decide whether you want to meet at two or five. You tell a child, you know, a time, you give them a specific task, you give them specific definitions, specific boundaries. There's no room for like, you know, think about it when you're 10 years old. I mean, you need clear instructions on how to think about life. Right. And we're not talking about conversations that could be occurring at a university level, you know, or even later in high school level. Right. Yeah. I agree with you. Dialogue is so important, regardless of how I think about it. Maybe I don't believe in it. And maybe, you know, another person does. The fact of the matter is we free speech is important on both sides and we need to be able to have dialogues about all kinds of controversial issues and we need to get it on the table and let the chips fall where they may right about the truth of it but these are kids we're talking about yeah there is an age appropriate even in you, you know united nation documents age appropriate is always a term that has been used so what i found interesting was that the conversation about puberty blockers oh, is introduced yeah. to a crowd that i mean we're talking way before puberty and i mean yeah. just go on. keep, keep go from i'm here. sorry i'm just like if you can see my face too probably <laughs> <laughs> but they can guess it it's just i it's again it it baffles me for a variety of reasons mm. one because of liability i mean why would teachers ever want to bring up some type this is a really harmful medical intervention that is it's i don't even want to say it's a medical intervention it's it's taking a healthy body and making it sick right puberty blockers are stopping a body that's doing its you know healthy process and it's stopping that. That's not usually something that we do, especially with kids, right? But for teachers to talk and offer that as an option for kids, for kids who are getting ready to go through puberty or going through puberty and are already feeling awkward about things and they think, oh wow, listen, teacher's telling me about this um, you know, medicine that can stop me from having all these awful uncomfortable feelings. I mean, because let's face it, right? Puberty can be very awkward. Mm -hmm. Kids can feel very uncomfortable in their bodies and it's a process. And every one of us who's gone through it, you know, has had that experience to one extent or the other. Yeah. And as you mentioned, there is no mention of uh, side effects or the reversible part of the damage that testosterone can do. And I know that these things are also, there's still studies going on on what will be the long-term effects. I was reading something. We have I mean, of course, you have men, you know, women with early menopause will have osteoporosis very early on. But then what happens when this this early on is very, very early on. And we're asking teachers, again, to step in a role of being, you know, advising on medical issues. They shouldn't be doing that. Right. And I'm sure most teachers don't want to do that. The other thing is, you know, they're talking about these drugs as an option for kids. Right. And they're bringing up in the the context of the, the class. You're not allowed to like bring up talking about like other medicine. I mean, you wouldn't bring up other medication, like other things in the classes with kids. You're not allowed to even like give students Tylenol. So girls who are going through puberty and having their periods, like schools can't even give them like Tylenol to help them with cramping. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, like it's just not that the schools are administering the drugs, but the fact that they're even talking about it is like a, you know, this valid option for kids. You know, it's just... um, Obviously, there's an agenda. You know, there's an agenda there. There is this thing also recently, a professor at Brown, Lisa Littman, became, you know, famous for her studies. You know, she's very pro um, 
LGBT uh, changes and, you know, pro the transgender, if you want to call it even agenda. But she pointed out the social contagion phenomenon that seems to be happening. I mean, she had eight problems because she was pointing out something she was seeing as a researcher and as a scholar that there is a social contagion phenomenon among teenagers and what she calls rapid onset gender dysphoria. So the idea that, you know, this gender dysphoria, which is a problem, is not something that kid children might be born with, but it's something that happens because of the peer pressure, the social media. And this is also something that that you point out in, in what you write, correct? Right. And I mean, and when you have that, it's already happening, all, right? That's happening already. The social contagion about the, the you know, the transgender issue is, is happening without instruction to the schools. But if you have instruction like this, what do you think is going to happen? You know, if you add that other element to it where you have school teachers talking about it and, you know, saying this is a valid option for students who are having, you know, being, feel uncomfortable in their body and they think they're, they're not the gender that they were born. How do you think that is going to move things along? I mean, this is the problem, right? You have it coming from all different places. Then you have a trusted teacher in school, right? When children, you send them to school as a parent, you say, okay, listen to your teacher, right? Like that's one thing parents have always said, go to school, you do your work, you listen to your teacher, you learn. You know, if the teacher is presenting this, of course, this is a valid option then. As we said earlier, especially you know, kids that are in public school do not have a lot of time to spend with their parents discussing in depth what they've heard from the teacher in school. Because that's, I mean, if that was the case, maybe, you know, children were going to a different school or they were homeschooled. Yeah. And a lot of time, well, see, part of the problem is, and this is why we wrote the article as well. The problem is the transparency issue in schools. Parents don't know that these things are being taught. One of the great things from the COVID situation was that some of these things blew open because parents were seeing what kids were learning, right? They were on the Zoom calls and like hearing what their kids were learning. And so they became alerted. That shouldn't have to be the case, though. Every school district should put the materials that they are using with their kids, especially these ones that they know are controversial, right? There's going to be some parents who don't agree with them. There'll be some parents who are fine. There's plenty of parents who are actually fine, especially in our area here. Only the parents in the school system, the public schools are okay with this. But for the parents who aren't okay, this information should be easily and readily available on all the websites so parents can review. So they don't have to go and file, you know, open document requests for them. So they don't have to like, you know, when they go to their teacher and say, what are you teaching about this? Like, can I see the curriculum? They shouldn't be pushed aside and said, well, we can't give you that. Or you have to go talk to an administrator. They should just be given it. They should be saying, here's the book. Here are the papers. Here are the lessons. This is what we're using. You can look at it and decide for yourself whether your child should be part of this. And also, but yes, you mentioned it's pretty hard to opt out, even if you want to, correct? Well, yeah, I tell you what, that's the trickiest thing. So technically speaking, with this comprehensive health and physical education curriculum, the students here in New Jersey are supposed to be allowed to opt out of that. What happens is... One, parents don't know what they're actually being taught in the thing. They don't think to opt them out. They don't know, and they can't get the information. So it makes it a little bit difficult. The other thing is this other law that I told you about that they passed in March of 2021, which it mandates that the instruction would have to include, it's mandated that they have to include diversity and inclusion instruction, specifically with sexual orientation and gender identity where appropriate in the curriculum. So these topics are coming up in other classes now. There's also, they also actually had another statute um, and we didn't get into that in this. Yeah, so it could happen article, in the literature class. But it's, 
Well, they have another statute that mandates that there has, in New Jersey at least, I don't know how other states are, but uh, there's got to be, it's the history curriculum. You have to have history regarding specific accomplishments of LGBTQ individuals in the history classes. Now, it's mandated in the curriculum. I forget what statute it is, but that was implemented, I think, in 2021 as well. So it's required to be in history classes, just the historical um, and the historical perspective is like of accomplishments of LGBTQ people. Mm-hmm. So it's coming in in different ways. And in those, actually, it's interesting because with those two statutes that I just mentioned, even on the FAQ, the website for the New Jersey Department of Education, right? So they're frequently asked questions and they talked about, um, they say like, what are the requirements of the diversity inclusion statutes? That's what they call them. They say that there is no opt-out for those. That material that has to be covered in your classes can be covered in anywhere it's appropriate in the curriculum. So these things are still coming in. So even if you opt your kids, like say, you know, okay, on, you know, Wednesday, May 20th, there's going to be the sex ed curriculum. They're going to be talking about different families. And I'm going to take my kid out of school that day. The problem is, is that in history class or in English class, similar information is getting in there and you cannot opt out of those classes. You can't opt your child out. So what do people do? People remove their kids from the public school. If they can. If they can. And I was just going to say, if they can, and it's not always easy. And, you know, there's the other, you know, another population that you didn't mention, Um, you know, obviously there's working parents, people can't afford it, but there's a large immigrant population that comes to this country expecting, you know, this great education system, the United States of America. And they come here thinking, I'm going to send my kids to school. They're going to learn. They don't realize that their kids are getting indoctrinated into this ideology at the schools. There was a big backlash in California, maybe two years ago now, where you had the the curriculum that they were implementing. They did not translate it. So all of the Hispanic parents did not realize what their kids were being taught. Then they ended up getting a translated version of it. And they like were up in arms. Like they couldn't believe that, you know, the kids were learning this. They had no idea. No, absolutely. And I mean, I come from a country where, you know, education is free and public schools are great. So parents would not even for a second think that there is a problem with public school before starting to read what their kids are actually doing. I mean, you would really need to sit them down and and talk to them for days to make them aware of the problem. But some brilliant authors were aware of these issues long before we did. And I just wanted, I have, there is this young professional reading group that we have here at the Austin Institute, which is pretty great. And we're reading, we usually read contemporary authors, but we read some Chesterton recently and uh, some of his essays, Phantom Sanity. And there is this article, Turning Inside Out, that he wrote in 1923. In this article, it defends the idea that education is the greatest thing. And turning inside out, you know, it speaks of how the domestic duties of mothers that were educating their children became a sign of like, oh, that's diminishing for a mother and her true emancipation is out of the home. And so it's trying to make the point that no, the true emancipation comes from doing precisely the task of educating because to educate is is the highest duty, is the highest responsibility we have. And so it says, if you exalt the education you must exalt the parental power that it. If you exaggerate the education, you must exaggerate the parental power that it. If you depreciate the parental power, you must appreciate education with it. If the young are always right and can do as they like, well and good, let us all be jolly old and young and free from every kind of responsibility. But in that case, do not come pestering us with the importance of education when nobody has any authority to educate anybody. 
And then he says, we cannot insist that the first years of infancy are of supreme importance and that mothers are not of supreme importance or that motherhood is a topic of sufficient interest for men, but not of sufficient interest for mothers. Every word that is said about the tremendous importance of trivial nursery habits goes to prove that being a nurse is not trivial. All tends to the return of the simple truth that the private work is the great one and the public work small. The human house is a paradox for it is larger inside than out. And then, I mean, continuing then, you know, in this essay, essay he talks about education, like the state education and public education, that it, it looks like it's a higher task. But it, what he points out is that it's much easier to deal with 100 people on a specific topic than to do what only a parent does, which is deal one-on-one and take <laughs> care of the whole person. Right. It's only then when you go back home that your mom will need to counsel you, not only on, you know, how you're scoring in math and history and literature, but also who you are and what you're going to do five years from today. Yeah. Are you going to be happy? Are you not going to be happy? Your 10th grade teacher, you know, might change a year after. Might, you, you will never see, see her again. Yeah. So he, you know, he speaks of our temptation of modern society saying, they would rather arrange the educational course in history or geography or correct examination papers in algebra or trigonometry for a hundred children than struggle with the whole human character of one. For anyone who makes himself responsible for one small baby as a whole will soon find that he's wrestling with gigantic angels and demons. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah, right. So there is a, I, I think that the reason Canavox leaders are pointing these things out is that most of them, as far as I understand, are mothers and mothers of many who have handled all sorts of problems in their own families and and are just aware of the fact that school can do a lot to help, but it can also cause a lot of problems if not well done and not well done. Yeah. Not- and I don't want to diminish, like, there's really good school teachers out there and who, people who are really committed to educating children. Right. There, there are good people who are in, in doing it. And there's plenty of the teachers who don't want to do this and their hands are tied. Right. Because they come with these government bureaucrats and these people who come into the government and have an agenda to push. And they're being told you have to do these things. So I do know plenty of them. And then it's actually some leave teaching. They go to different schools. I have a friend who taught in the public schools for, I don't know, 20 years. She was an administrator. She got out and she's teaching at, you know, where my kids go to school, where they are, you know, it's just a, it's. They're taught what's true, good, and beautiful, and they just, you know, they're not, they're not forced to teach these curriculum that, and actually, and, and the thing that they're not being taught to do is take over the role of the parents, right? The parents are the primary educators of their children, and what's happened now is there's this idea out there, I think, that, and I was just having this conversation with friends, we had a Canavox meeting here in Princeton the other night, and we were having a conversation about this. The general thought is that kids aren't, you know, your children aren't yours. The schools are the, they're more responsible for educating your children than you are. And that is a flip-flop, right? That is not, that's not the truth. That's not how it is. Parents have the right to be the primary educators of their children, and they should be working in partnership with the schools, even the public schools, you know, not just private school parents who can afford to take their kids and, you know, you know, have more input into the school. Every school, the teachers should be wanting to work with parents to educate the kids, right? And so should the school administrators. 
But it's this idea of like the state taking over the role, the parental role that has, I think, you know, actually emboldened the administrations to be able to put these types of um, lessons in the curriculum as opposed to like leaving it for parents to teach what they think is appropriate for their kids at different ages, right? Or, and how they want to talk about them, right? Based on their faith and their beliefs and a variety of other things, right? Yeah, and and of course, I mean, we all know, I, I come from a broken family myself, so I'm fully aware that families are not always perfect, but in general no, terms, right. Right. and you know, there is even an, an Italian saying that is, whoever loves you more than your mother does is probably trying to trick you into something. I love that. Right, like, so chi fa più di mamma yes. sta sicuro ti inganna, for those who know Italians. But yeah, I mean, it's, and Chesterton writes in several essays. So we're talking about the beginning of the last century and saying the state doesn't have the energy needed and the love needed to be the final educator. So in this sense, you know, keeping, and, and we had, you know, our fellow Melissa Moschella writes extensively about the fact that children really belong to parents. And the reason is, particular is one of the reasons is that parents are the ones that love them the most when, when most everything is functional, right? Yeah. Yes. Right. Right. Parents are the ones who care about you most. What happens to you and what happens in your life? They want to help you, you know, flourish and grow and just, you know, be your best person. And the person at the school doesn't have that interest in you. Yeah. Well, I mean, or if they do at this point, they're handling with problems that should not be their problems. In favor of teachers, I say, you know, they should be teaching Shakespeare and they should yes. be teaching history yeah. and they should not be messing around with these this topics yeah. that are too soon and too private. I want to thank you very much, April. And I also want to invite our listeners to check out not only the Austinists, as I said at the beginning, and subscribe to our channels, but also to check out Canavox. And if they're interested, in starting a group and participating to a group. There are groups in Texas, there are groups in Austin, there are groups everywhere, there are groups in, as I hear in every continent, there is kind of a group where anyone can start one to talk about marriage, talk about family, talk about the hookup culture, talk about dating, talk about in vitro fertilization. So we'll link to the article, of course, so that everything you know that you said will be in detail there. And again, you're an attorney, so you've been specific in things you said, but then the writing is always, you know, people can be more sure by, by reading. Absolutely. So we'll link to that. We'll link to the website and uh, to the previous episode, maybe with Anna. But thank you again for your work. Keep up the good work, as people say. Yeah. Thank and, you for supporting us. Yeah. And I look forward to talking to you again. Absolutely. Thanks so much. Thank you all for listening to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. Please share it with your friends. Please give us a five-star rating and please donate so we can do even more.